0: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality. You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable.
1: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit LeCrewset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S E-T.com.
0: Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Werner-Berry, here with executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel. For a country smaller than the size of Texas, France has a huge diversity of distinct regional breads. Coran, Bordelaise, Fougasse, Tapetier, the list goes on. And it's not just a French phenomenon. All of Europe has had an oversized impact on bread around the world, including here in the United States bakeries from Alabama to Wyoming are stocked with baguettes and focaccia. But where are all the American regional breads? The first that comes to mind may be Wonder Bread. While that's truly American, unfortunately, that's not really what we're talking about. San Francisco sourdough fits the bill, being truly of the Bay Area and its microbes. A product of the gold rush, the gold fever of the mid-1800s is reflected in the popularity of today's perfect loaves. But that can't be the only one, right? So what's the criteria for a bread to be regional? Following the taxonomy of Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya's Modernist Bread, we're looking for yeasted breads that are unique to the United States and expressive of a specific place or people. From California to the New York Island, From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this bread was made for you and me. Let's ask Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread. Is there a regional bread culture in the United States?
2: Well, is there? And the answer is no.
0: Okay, so that settles it. Thanks for listening.
1: No, no, let's keep searching. There's got to be something somewhere, right?
2: I mean, sure, some of you say, well, what about, I don't know, Kaiser Rolls? Well, uh, is there really a culture of an identity of a, of a, of a state it, that claims Kaiser Rolls as being their own? I would say that we don't really have that in the United States. Part of it is because we're, we're a much newer country than you know, a lot of European countries that started making bread centuries ago. Hear that the tradition of, of making like really local types of brain, breads, I don't think it exists. We couldn't really identify like really regional American breads.
1: Kaiser rolls or Vienna hard rolls are a bodega staple in New York City for bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches, but their origins are from the monarchy in Austria. We can debate who gets to claim them, or we can
3: buy you a different roll that's had more of an impact. My name is Sandy Wan, that's spelled W-H-A-N-N, and I'm the president uh, of Leidenheimer Baking Company in New Orleans. I'm the fourth generation of my family to run the company, which was started by my great-grandfather, George H. Leidenheimer, in 1896.
1: Leidenheimer's is now synonymous with the Paul Boy role of New Orleans. But that wasn't the bakery's original product. George was a German immigrant making the heavy brown breads and rise of his native country it wasn't until a nearby invention in the era of the great depression that leidenheimers found its niche when we talk about
3: pullboys we're referring to not only the sandwich but the the actual piece of bread itself the history of the pullboy is somewhat legendary down here uh, there were many labor strikes going on at the time, and one of them was a streetcar worker strike. And around 1929, the members of uh, Division 194, uh, the carmen, C-A-R-M-E-N as they called them, were on strike. And they, in fact, the strike at, at some point uh, turned uh, rather violent. The lore goes
1: like this. Clovis and Benny Martin, owners of Martin's Coffee Stand and Restaurant, were sympathetic to the striking carmen, having been former members of Division 194 themselves. They sent a letter to the carmen on August 6, 1929, saying, We are with you, heart and soul. At any time you are around the French market, don't forget to drop in. Our meal is free to any members of Division 194. We are with you till hell freezes, and when it does, we will furnish blankets to keep you warm.
3: And as the saying goes, uh, when the striking railcar workers would come in, Benny or Clovis would say, oh, here comes another one of those poor boys. Give them something to eat. And the cheapest thing they could give them, of course, was some form of bread with the drippings of beef gravy on it. As legend has it, that's where it started. And it's grown from uh, very humble beginnings to, of course, uh, now stuffed with uh, you know, beautiful Louisiana fried oysters and shrimp and soft-shell crabs and uh, still roast beef, uh, ham and cheese, and just about anything you can imagine putting on there. The sandwiches caught on, especially after our bread upgrade.
1: The Martin brothers used French bread, but had pointy ends and didn't make equal-sized sandwiches. To solve the problem, the modern, more or less symmetrical boy roll was born. Not long after, Leidenheimer started making the bread and became one of the largest suppliers in the city. But is it just another European import
3: like the Kaiser roll? Or is it something truly unique? So the Pullboy loaf traditionally is about 32 inches long and about 3 inches wide. And what makes our New Orleans French bread, and particularly Leidenheimer bread, unique is how light it is. So we strive for what we call a cotton candy interior or cotton candy crumb with a crisp crust, a crisp exterior. There's an old saying that if you're, if you're eating a real New Orleans pull boy, two things have to happen. Gravy should be dripping down your arms and you should cut your lips on the crust.
1: The bread is made in such a way that it's never meant to fight the ingredients that it holds. It's the baseline of the band marching all over the big easy to the tune of thousands of loaves a day.
3: I think one of the beauties of our product and one of the things that folks here enjoy most is that you know our product goes from the finest white tablecloth restaurants in New Orleans to guys sitting on bar stools in you know in neighborhood watering holes you can you can you can walk into a po'boy shop in New Orleans and find carnival royalty uh you know sitting there eating a pull boy right next to you know a tourist or or next to somebody who lives in the neighborhood and just walked in for a beer and a pull boy. as i said it holds broad appeal for all members of uh all all folks in New Orleans visitors and, and uh, locals alike I, I can't tell you how important it is for us and how much we cherish our place uh in New Orleans culinary landscape we know that chefs and po'boy shop owners and our uh, tours of all stripes uh, really rely on us on a daily basis. A boy shop simply can't open without our product, and we know that, uh, and we take it very, very seriously.
1: So is the Poboy a regional bread or just an integral part of New Orleans regional cuisine? Maybe it's not that there are no regional breads, but that their traditions aren't as pervasive to the overall food culture in the same way that other dishes or ingredients are. Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, points us a little further back in time for some clarity.
4: Enormous amount of food is regional. This is particularly true if you go to a place that's been inhabited for a long time. So if you go to Italy, you will discover that just 10 miles away, everyone is making different dishes and you ask about this particular pasta you had, and they say, we don't make that. What are you, are you nuts? We make this shape. We don't make that other shape. Be serious. And you don't find a regional specialty of one in another place. So throughout Europe and places have been settled for a long time, there are these strong traditions. We have some strong traditions in the United States, but those traditions Typically, first of all, they go around the oldest parts of the U.S. There's classic foods of New England. uh, And there are for some other parts of the U.S. And others, eh, not not so much.
0: If the whole country had been bowled over by bulls of bread bowls, we'd have more than two types of chowder. Anyway, that's another case, like the po' boy, where the bread's biggest role is as a vehicle, not a menu item on its own.
4: Now, when it comes to bread, you've got a double whammy because bread for a very long time has been more made by professionals than at home. Some of the home cooks know how to make bread, but how hard should you work on bread? There's this baker right down the you know the street in the village and they have stuff fresh every day. Yeah, what the hell? Those bakers have invested in an oven, and bread ovens were large, expensive pieces of capital equipment for thousands of years. And another reason you'd say, well, gee, why, why would I do that at home? Well, then the U.S. went through a period of modernizing our food, particularly after World War II. Supermarkets became a big thing. And one of the foods that was most industrialized most quickly was bread. Instead of having the rustic farm kind of loaves, you had these perfect machine-made loaves that people were nuts about when they first came out. White bread was viewed as being higher quality, more pure, more safe. None of the things we think about supermarket white bread today, but at the time it was like a really big deal to have that. And so a lot of the regional bread traditions that had previously existed Kind of got swept away.
0: The holdouts, these breads that we're exploring in this episode, are fighting the good fight. Every time we bake a loaf, we're preserving the heritage of a place, a people, and a process.
4: Now, that doesn't mean that there's zero. If you look in bread recipe books going back 100 years, even to the present, you'll sometimes find a bread called Anadama bread. An anadama bread is kind of a weird mix of flours. It's got a little uh, cornmeal in it. It's got wheat flour, both white and whole wheat. It typically has some molasses in it. There are lots of stories as to where anadama came from, including that it was originated by a woman named Anna, whose husband would say, Anna, damn it, make that bread. (laughs) Um... That's literally, seriously, you find that story. I've got no idea if the story is true. I kind of hope it is.
0: We're wicked intrigued. To find out more about this New England regional bread, let's put on our L.L. Bean boots and head up to Maine. My name is Allison Prey,
5: and I am the co-owner of Standard Baking Company in Portland,
0: Standard Baking Company has been an important part of the Portland food scene since 1995. Allison honors main-grown ingredients and recipes, including Anadama.
5: Thinking back to traditional New England baked goods, not too many yeasted breads come to mind other than Anadama. It's a cornmeal-based yeast bread that has a really firm texture. It's slightly sweet from the molasses. To me, it's a delicious toasting bread. Um, And it does pair really well with savory foods, especially meats. You can imagine having a turkey sandwich or or ham or smoked meat in combination with the cornmeal and molasses and that sweet and savory. It's a really nice combination.
0: Even James Beard in Beard on Bread said There are many recipes for this famous American loaf. No two people can agree on what the original was, but it's practically certain that it contained cornmeal and molasses. If there are any truths about anadama, it's that these ingredients are nearly Puritan law. Surprisingly, though, Fannie Farmer's 1943 Boston Cooking School cookbook doesn't include a recipe. Damn it.
5: And it also has all those flavors. That we think of with New England's history, Thanksgiving sort of flavors. Other New England or regional foods that we make, pastries or breads, tend to have the same flavors, molasses and cornmeal. And we also try to incorporate seasonal foods, fruits, and local grains. But as far as heritage, you know, New England heritage, I think the Anadama probably epitomizes the Northeast.
0: The first printed recipe for anadama is dated to 1915, and there's a patent mentioning it from 1850. But the bread's origins are really based on the ingredients that indigenous farmers were cultivating, way before the idea of New England had crossed anybody's mind.
5: Our history going back to you know, (laughs) pre-Columbus, and having an indigenous population who had their own food traditions and were planting and growing corn is one food that we know they were growing. And so we have access to heritage varieties of cornmeal, like the Abenaki flint corn. And so when local growers have been able to discover that and grow it seasonally, that was um, a turning point for us to know that here's such an exciting and unusual ingredient. So let's try to create some recipes around something like that. And to me, that feels like sort of a connection to our traditional food ways here in New England and in the northern part of the country. And just finding ways, ourselves, to bring out the flavors of the grains and the flavors of these unique ingredients.
0: Anadama has been preserved partly because it's a popular bread for home baking. While it's being passed down through generations, having a good story to go along with the recipe certainly helps it stick. And as far as most cookbooks are concerned, Nathan wasn't far off with his tale about the origins of its unusual name. In one version, a fisherman is angry with his wife, Anna, for serving him nothing but cornmeal and molasses. So one day, he adds flour and yeast to his porridge. He eats it, now in bread form, while cursing, "'Anna, damn her!' In another version, Anna is a skillful bread baker whose husband says, "'Anna, damn her!' with great pride as he wolfs down the bread. According to John Mariani's recounting of the latter story in the Dictionary of American Food and Drink, Anna's tombstone allegedly reads, Anna was a lovely bride, but Anna Dammer up and died. While you make up your own story about Anna, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades.
1: These American regional breads define a place, and though the recipes have changed very little over time, the communities have evolved. Eating them reminds us of our heritage, and welcomes us when we travel to New Orleans and take our first bite of a po boy. With high-quality ingredients from Bob's Red Mill, you can easily whip up your own batch of anadama or salt-rising bread, no matter where you are in the country.
0: With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely, you're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals it creates and the style it expresses. Anadama bread has been a favorite of New England home bakers for generations, and it goes really well with lots of things that you can make in your Le Creuset Dutch oven. Since it's the week after Thanksgiving, I'm having mine with leftover turkey soup. The soup is super easy to make thanks to superior heat retention, precision lid, and proprietary enamel of my La Crusade Dutch oven. The slight sweetness and tight crumb of the bread make it perfect for Duncan. And if there's any leftover anadama, I'll clean out the Dutch oven and make a custard-based bread pudding.
1: Original Heirloom cookware, backed by a lifetime warranty, Only from La Creuset. Visit lecreuset.com backslash bread to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search their recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with the code BREAD.
0: Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. So far this episode, we've traveled to New Orleans for po'boys and all the way up the coast to New England for Anadama. But in the search for American regional breads, the craziest stop might be between the two, deep in the mountains of Appalachia.
6: So the way I typically explain it, I, I do this almost as a scare tactic because it's something that is... Is so particular, and I'm so particular about the process, it's very reliant on a lot of ambient conditions. So I scare the crap out of my cook sometimes when I say, okay, this, this bread is not leavened by salt, as you would be led to believe with the name. It's actually leavened with ambient botulism. <laughs> and that freaks everybody out immediately. This
1: is Travis Milton, chef-owner of Milton's, and the forthcoming shovel-and-pick and pick in Simply Grand in St. Paul, Virginia. Travis hails from rural southwestern Virginia, and the bread he's talking about is Appalachian salt rising bread.
6: So Appalachian food is very subsistence-based. And being subsistence-based, it's very super creative. Leavening wasn't something that you had a lot of. So you, you, weren't, you weren't able to, you know, bake breads with yeast or, you know, eventually, you know, baking soda, baking powder, you know, for different reasons, whether it be economic or whether it be you the fact that we're in the mountains and it was harder to get some things at some points. So it was really crazy how this weird fermented bread came about because it, it is on, on a cursory level. It's now dangerous as hell, but uh, it's actually amazing. You're just utilizing what is, is around you and, and things that you don't even realize are around you.
1: Salt rising bread is, like Travis keeps saying, a little scary. It's leavened, not with ambient yeast like a sourdough starter, but with ambient botulism. Yeah, like the botulism that can kill you.
6: It's it's a very peculiar bread. It actually doesn't even taste like like bread, to be honest. It it tastes like just a supercharged sourdough to the point where if you do it one particular way, it comes out tasting like a, a beautiful parmesan. But it's it made uh, traditionally with raw milk and. Raw flour and, and meal, uh, typically some cornmeal. Um, I sometimes use acornmeal a in there just to give it like a little bit of a bitterness to play off that Parmesan kind of flavor, give it that kind of rindy flavor. You you let it sit out literally for, for about a full day at about 100 degrees right in that area where every chef has been taught. You do not let anything sit in this area. It's the danger, the danger zone. But in order to grow that bacteria, that's all you can do. I, I've never had luck doing it in a proofer or anything like that because you need that open air. But it's 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 so quirky and, and so cool. And uh, it, it's one of my favorite little weird things because it's one of the things that has shock value to to uh, Appalachian food. And, you know, it, it's kind of hard finding shock value in any kind of food, I think. But, but that's one that I could definitely pique somebody's interest real quick.
1: This seems like a bread to make in a laboratory, for safety's sake, rather than in a much less sterile home environment. But really, that bit of danger is what makes it so intriguing.
6: In looking at at a regional cuisine, I think one of the first and foremost things you have to do is practice that restraint of going, you know what, my talent isn't better than what this bread is. I, I do mine with very, very good ingredients, like, like you know, the best flour that I can. And occasionally, I'll use raw milk. Don't tell anybody because I don't think the health department behaves about that, as I say that on a national podcast. <laughs> Part of, I think, being a, a chef, especially in the South these days, is having that dichotomy of of, of approach and how you think about things of sometimes – you don't want to mess with it, um, and that's one thing with salt rising bread. It's pretty damn perfect as it is. I, I actually don't even incorporate it into a lot of a lot of dishes. I do occasionally. I'll do this this very umami bomb of a a pork schnitzel dish where it's actually breaded with koji and also salt rising bread. But outside of that, I want people to experience what this bread is like on its own. So a lot of times. Nine times out of ten, I'll just bake, you know, fifty loaves and I'll put them out for service. Like that's that's your bread. I want you to sit here and eat this with some really nice cultured butter, and experience why this weird little thing is so amazing.
1: He's really not trying to kill you. We promise, but it won't wound his pride if it takes you a bit to trust the process.
6: <laughs> um, that's one of my favorite weird stories about salt rising bread. Um, I believe it was the University of West Virginia. They were they were doing some crazy weird scientific thing involving food and they were looking at, at botulism and looking at specifically how and why it, it leavens salt rising bread and they were able to actually bake a loaf from what they drew out of someone's botulism infected wound. That that to me is taking it a little far. I I mean, you know, i I could tell everyone's all blue in the face, you know, once you bake this bread, the bacteria is dead. So you're not licking somebody's finger cut, but at the same time, it's still in the back of my head. And I'm like, you know what, let's just stick with the, the ambient vautilism in the air. But, but apparently it'd take the perfect loaf.
0: <laughs> to make sure Travis isn't just spinning a spooky tale, we decided to do some quick fact-checking with co-author of Modernist Bread, Nathan Mirvold. Is this salt-rising bread a real thing? or an Appalachian ghost story. Now,
4: salt-rising bread has actually very little to do with salt. They put salt into the bread primarily to inhibit the growth of natural yeasts and things that would actually make a sourdough. And instead, salt-rising dough gets infected with a bacteria called Clostridium perfringens. Now, that's a really nasty pathogen. It first became popularly known during World War I, it was called gas gangrene. Soldiers in the trenches would get deep wounds that weren't cleaned out. Clostridium is a bacterium that doesn't like oxygen. And so it grows best in things where there's no oxygen or like circulation has been cut off so you don't have blood providing oxygen to tissue. And it produces lots of gas and it has these horrible pictures of these soldiers with these bloated limbs that have to be amputated before it kills them. But by God, you can make bread out of it. You create a dough that is biased to have conditions where it's unlikely to be colonized by a sourdough. It gets colonized by clostridium, and it puffs up real nice. Now, once it's thoroughly baked— There's no danger from the clostridium bacteria. That said, you better be really careful that you washed everything else in your kitchen down super well because any bit of that raw dough could make you really, really sick.
0: I don't know about you, but this salt-rising bread stuff has really gotten under my skin. Maybe I didn't bake it long enough. What is it about Appalachia that fostered such a fascinating bread? Ronnie Lundy author of the James Beard Award-winning Vittles, an Appalachian journey with recipes, tells us more about the mountain way of life.
7: So the word vittles is spelled V-I-C-T-U-A-L-S and it is correctly pronounced and always has been correctly pronounced vittles. It's an English word, which means the food that you eat, uh, not just you know the food that's on the table, but the food that's in the larder and the food that you grow and the food that you hunt. It's just kind of an all-purpose term for food. And Southern Appalachia has had our story and our representation as a people and a culture taken away from us and valorized by the larger mythology of America. And so we are often portrayed as being very backward and very foolish. And having people who say vittles for, to indicate their food is kind of a chuckle inducing thing. You know, we see Granny Clampett uh, she always jumps up when she says it, and winks her eye, and, and we see Mammy Yoakum, and it's spelled V-I-T-T-L-E-S, as if that were incorrect. But as is in so many cases with the story of Appalachia, the joke is really on the outsiders who think they uh, have caught us in a mistake, when in fact uh, we are saying the word correctly.
0: These sensationalized stereotypes in the media have made the region out to be all moonshine and clan feuding but it's far from what Little Abner would have you believe. What
7: distinguishes Appalachian foodways is they were this coming together Of these Native American foods and traditions with the foodways of America were um, that coming together with, with European and African and Caribbean foodways. We're not actually as isolated as the story has made us out to be, but the region itself has kept traditions much longer than other regions of the country. Part of that is our geography you know, our land is encased in mountains. We do have valleys. We do have balds where herds of animals were once able to graze, but they're not the kind of places that can be fenced in and turned into an industrial farm. So, Appalachia has kept a lot of traditions intact that in other parts of the country have fallen away and people who want to want to practice them are having to revive them. There are still people who are making salt bread the way their mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers made the bread and passed it down to them and are passing it on to a newer generation. This is why we all get into this and go, ooh, you know, because there's all this wonderful speculation and there's story in it. Part of the story of Appalachian foodways is that it busts some of the ugliest myth about Appalachians, that we were ignorant and that we were lazy. You start looking at the ways that we figured out how to preserve and to make food, and you realize that none of that is true. Salt-Rising Bread clearly one of them. You know, that's some pretty wise and inventive and
0: original thinking. If you want to taste salt rising bread before tackling what Ronnie calls the charismatic and stinky process of making it at home, she recommends Rising Creek Bakery in Mount Morris, Pennsylvania. Jenny Bardwell and Susan Brown have codified the roots and stories and techniques of the bread in their book, Salt Rising Bread, Recipes and Heartfelt Stories of the Nearly Lost Appalachian Tradition. And they even do mail order. We'll put a link to the bakery in the show notes. Be sure to toast some slices because that is, without a doubt, the
7: best way to consume it, although it's delicious as a sandwich. The toasting just really seems to bring out that quality, that sort of cheesy, slightly sweet quality that people love in this particular bread. One of the things that I like about food is that it has just enough science in it that when someone explains it, I can sort of get it. So I kind of like to think of all these tiny bacteria that are burping and, you know, and they make very small little bubbles but it makes a rise it just creates a dense texture you know and then the other part of it is that there's probably some sort of elf or fairy or magical spirit involved in it because anybody who's made salt rising bread knows that it can be a a heartbreaking failure and along with having a broken heart it's going to stink up your house
1: These examples of regional breads that we found, the Paul Boy, Matadama, and Salt Rising bread, are all breads from America's past that have held the test of time. But does a bread need to be old to be a beacon of regionality? We asked Francisco Magoya, co-author of Modernist Bread, can we invent new regional breads?
2: A very interesting thing that you see happen in bakeries is that you go to a bakery in Tokyo, you go to one in Paris, you go to one in New York City, you go to one in Vancouver, and you're going to see very similar breads, right? There's a baguette, there's a sourdough boule, there's a country bread, whatever they decided to call a country bread, but there's a country style bread, there's a rustic bread, uh, there's a miche, uh you name it. And the question here is why... Why are all these bakeries making very similar breads? Because if you went to the restaurants in those cities, you'd be seeing very different food. And even within the same city, there's the restaurants, they all offer different kinds of food. Why has it become the thing that every bakery needs to have a baguette and a sourdough? And considering how each culture is so unique uh, internationally, but also within a country itself, I can see... A bread that is specific to the West Coast that the East Coast won't necessarily get or do or make. But I could see the East Coast doing their own thing. Southern states, you know, Midwest, so forth. Why don't we come up with our own breads, right? You know, originally we thought when we were writing this book, I thought this can't be more than one volume. And I was so mistaken because we ended up with five and it was going to be six. We had to cut so much. And... At the end of the day, with these, it's basically combining four ingredients in different proportions. And sure, sometimes you add fat, sometimes you add sugar, sometimes you add these other things. But at the end of the day, with this the same ingredients, you get bread.
1: So let's get rid of the prefixes and be open to introducing ourselves to opportunity. Even with a small, specific set of ingredients, we already know there's a profusion of breads available around the world. As part of the world baking stage, it's our time, as Americans to expand our grain glossary, and redefine who we are as bread bakers.
2: The time is ripe to be making regional breads, and why haven't we come up with that yet? I mean, why, what is stopping us from doing that? We can use local grains, and does bread look, need to look like all the other breads we've made before, or can it look slightly different? There's a lot of opportunity there for coming up with some cool new breads. And hopefully that's something that actually happens. I mean, I wonder if people are just afraid of opening this weird bakery that doesn't sell baguettes, you know, (laughs) or breads that nobody can really identify as breads that they know. I mean, is it that connected to our psyche that we have to see these breads in a bakery in order for us to patronize the bakery? Or can we get a little bit creative? I mean, if you think... There's been a lot more innovation in pastry and gastronomy, and people have embraced that so quickly. People will get in line for hours to taste whatever the new thing is. Why don't we get that excited about bread? You know, I mean, if, I feel like maybe the problem is us, the consumer, right? It might be that it's not the bakers, it's the consumer, that just bread needs to be this way for them, right? So, uh, but we will never know unless we try it. So hopefully this this starts that conversation.
0: Our country was built on the hard work of carmen, farmers, and coal miners, and these regional breads are the food that fueled them. They're salt of the earth, especially when they're salt risen. In the wheat fields waving and dust clouds rolling, the voice was chanting as the fog was lifting, this bread was made for you and me. Now, facing down the future, we as bakers can build a new story of bread in America we can look to local farms and ingredients, to the rest of our regional cuisines, and back into the archives of our communities. Let's be inspired both by history and by the possibility of what's around us, taking this lack of regional breads as an opportunity for originality. In Modernist Bread, Nathan and Francisco remind us that each of the breads we have today was thought up by some creative person. Sometimes to solve a problem, sometimes to explore an artistic vision, and sometimes as merely a happy accident. With that in mind, the answer to our opening question, is there a regional bread culture in the United States, should and will be yes.
1: This has been episode 13 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Breads Across America. In the next episode, we'll go down the rabbit hole of breads with holes. Special thanks this week to Allison Prey, Sandy Wan, Ronnie Lundy, Travis Milton, and our research assistant, Alex Greenberg.
0: Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael Harlan Turkell and me, Jordan Werner Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osband.
1: Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage
6: underscore radio.